Section 37 of A Half Century of Conflict. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. A Half Century of Conflict by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter 20, Part 2. Pepperell and Warren at length came to an understanding as to a joint attack by land and water. The island battery was by this time crippled, and the town batteries that commanded the interior of the harbor were nearly destroyed. It was agreed that Warren, whose squadron was now increased by recent arrivals to eleven ships, besides the provincial cruisers, should enter the harbor with the first fair wind, cannonade the town, and attack it in boats, while Pepperell stormed it from the land side. Warren was to hoist a Dutch flag under his pennant, at his main-top gallant masthead, as a signal that he was about to sail in, and Pepperell was to answer by three columns of smoke, marching at the same time toward the walls, with drums beating and colors flying. The French saw with dismay a large quantity of fascines carried to the foot of the glacis, ready to fill the ditch, and their scouts came in with reports that more than a thousand scaling ladders were lying behind the ridge of the nearest hill toil loss of sleep and the stifling air of the casemates in which they were forced to take refuge had sapped the strength of the besieged the town was a ruin only one house was untouched by shot or shell we could have borne all this writes the intendant bigot but the scarcity of powder the loss of the vigilant the presence of the squadron and the absence of any news from marin who had been ordered to join us with his canadians and indians spread terror among troops and inhabitants the townspeople said that they did not want to be put to the sword and were not strong enough to resist a general assault on the fifteenth of june they brought a petition to duchambon begging him to capitulate on that day captain sherburne at the advance battery wrote in his diary by twelve o'clock we had got all our platforms laid embrasures mended guns in order shot in place cartridges ready dined gunners quartered matches lighted to return their last favors when we heard their drums beat a parley and soon appeared a flag of truce which i received midway between our battery and their walls conducted the officer to greenville and delivered him to colonel richmond la perelle the french officer delivered a note from duchambon directed to both pepperell and warren and asking for a suspension of arms to enable him to draw up proposals for capitulation warren chanced to be on shore when the note came and the two commanders answered jointly that it had come in good time as they had just resolved on a general attack and that they would give the governor till eight o'clock of the next morning to make his proposals they came in due time but were of such a nature that pepperell refused to listen to them and sent back bonaventure the officer who brought them with counter-proposals these were the terms which duchambon had rejected on the seventh of may with added conditions as among others that no officer soldier or inhabitant of louisbourg should bear arms against the king of england or any of his allies for the space of a year duchambon stipulated as the condition of his acceptance that his troops should march out of the fortress with their arms and colors to this both the english commanders consented warren observing to pepperell the uncertainty of our affairs that depends so much on wind and weather makes it necessary not to stickle at trifles the articles were signed on both sides and on the seventeenth the ships sailed peacefully into the harbor 
while pepperrell with a part of his ragged army entered the south gate of the town never was a place more mauled with cannon and shells he writes to shirley neither have i read in history of any troops behaving with greater courage we gave them about nine thousand cannonballs and six hundred bombs thus this unique military performance ended in complete and astonishing success according to english accounts the french had lost about three hundred men during the siege but their real loss seems to have been not much above a third of that number on the side of the besiegers the deaths from all causes were only a hundred and thirty about thirty of which were from disease the french used their muskets to good purpose but their mortar practice was bad and close as was the advanced battery to their walls they often failed to hit it while the ground on both sides of it looked like a ploughed field from the bursting of their shells their surrender was largely determined by want of ammunition as according to one account the french had but thirty-seven barrels of gunpowder left in which particular the besiegers fared little better the new england man had been full of confidence in the result of the proposed assault and a french writer says that the timely capitulation saved louisbourg from a terrible catastrophe yet ill-armed and disorderly as the besiegers were it may be doubted whether the quiet ending of the siege was not as fortunate for them as for their foes the discouragement of the french was increased by greatly exaggerated ideas of the force of the bastonnais the habitant de louisbourg places the land force alone at eight or nine thousand men and duchambon reports to the minister d'arhensen that he was attacked in all by thirteen thousand his mortifying position was a sharp temptation to exaggerate but his conduct can only be explained by a belief that the force of his enemy was far greater than it was in fact warren thought that the proposed assault would succeed and wrote to pepperell that he hoped they would soon keep a good house together and give the ladies of louisbourg a gallant ball during his visit to the camp on the day when the flag of truce came out he made a speech to the new england soldiers exhorting them to behave like true englishmen at which they cheered lustily making a visit to the grand battery on the same day he won high favor with the regiment stationed there by the gift of a hogshead of rum to drink his health whether warren's gallant ball ever took place in louisbourg does not clearly appear pepperell on his part celebrated the victory by a dinner to the commodore and his officers as the redoubtable parson moody was the general's chaplain and the oldest man in the army he expected to ask a blessing at the board and was in fact invited to do so to the great concern of those who knew his habitual prolixity and dreaded its effect on the guests at the same time not one of them dared rasp his irritable temper by any suggestion of brevity and hence they came in terror to the feast expecting an invocation of a good half-hour ended by an open revolt by the hungry britons when to their surprise and relief moody said good lord we have so much to thank thee for that time will be too short and we must leave it for eternity bless our food and fellowship upon this joyful occasion for the sake of christ our lord amen and with this he sat down it is said that he had been in the french church hewing at the altar and images with the axe that he had brought for that purpose and perhaps this iconoclastic performance had eased the high pressures of his zeal amazing as their triumph was pepperell's soldiers were not satisfied with the capitulation and one of them utters his disapproval in his diary thus sabbath day ye sixteenth of june 
they came to terms for us to enter ye city to-morrow and poor terms they be too the occasion of discontent was the security of property assured to the inhabitants by which means says that dull chronicler niles the poor soldiers lost all their hopes and just demerit desert of plunder promised them in the meagerness of their pay they thought themselves entitled to the plunder of louisbourg which they imagined to be a seat of wealth and luxury nathaniel sparhawk pepperell's thrifty son-in-law shared this illusion and begged the general to get for him at a low price a handsome service of silver plate when the volunteers exchanged their wet and dreary camp for what they expected to be the comfortable quarters of the town they were disgusted to see the houses still occupied by the owners and to find themselves forced to stand guard at the doors to protect them a great noise and hubbub amongst ye soldiers about ye plunder some cursing some a swearin writes one of the disgusted victors they were not and perhaps could not be long kept in order and when in accordance with the capitulation the inhabitants had been sent on board vessels for transportation to france discipline gave way and general walcott records that while moody was preaching on a sunday in the garrison chapel there was excessive stealing in every part of the town little however was left to steal but if the army found but meagre gleanings the navy reaped a rich harvest french ships instead of being barred out of the harbor were now lured to enter it the french flag was kept flying over the town and in this way prizes were entrapped to the estimated value of a million sterling half of which went to the crown and the rest to the british officers and crews the army getting no share whatever now rose the vexed question of their relative part borne by the colonies and the crown the army and the navy in the capture of louisbourg and here it may be well to observe the impressions of a french witness of the siege it was an enterprise less of the english nation and its king than of the inhabitants of new england alone this singular people have their own laws and administration and their governor plays the sovereign admiral commodore warren had no authority over the troops sent by the governor of boston and he was only a spectator nobody would have said that their sea and land forces were of the same nation and under the same prince no nation but the english is capable of such eccentricities bizarreries which nevertheless are a part of the precious liberty of which they show themselves so jealous the french writer is correct when he says that the land and sea forces were under separate commands and it is equally true that but for the conciliating temper of pepperell harmony could not have been preserved between the two chiefs but when he calls warren a mere spectator he does glaring injustice to that gallant officer whose activity and that of his captains was incessant and whose services were invaluable they maintained with slight lapses an almost impossible blockade without which the siege must have failed two or three small vessels got into the harbor but the capture of the vigilon more than any other event of the siege discouraged the french and prepared them for surrender several english writers speak of warren and the navy as the captors of louisbourg with all new england writers giving the chief honor to pepperell and the army neither army nor navy would have been successful without the other warren and his officers in a council of war had determined that so long as the island battery and the water batteries of the town remained in an efficient state the ships could not enter the harbor and warren had personally expressed the same opinion 
he did not mean to enter till all the batteries which had made the attempt impracticable including the circular battery which was the most formidable of all had been silenced or crippled by the army and by the army alone the whole work of the siege fell upon the land forces and though it had been proposed to send a body of marines on shore this was not done three or four gunners to put your men in the way of loading cannon was warren's contribution to the operations of the siege though the fear of attack by the ships jointly with the land forces no doubt hastened the surrender beauharnois governor of canada ascribes the defeat to the extreme activity with which the new england men pushed their attacks the habitant de louisbourg says that each of the two commanders was eager that the keys of the fortress should be delivered to him and not to his colleague that before the surrender warren sent an officer to persuade the french that it would be for their advantage to make their submission to him rather than to pepperell and that it was in fact so made walcott on the other hand with the best means of learning the truth says in his diary that pepperell received the keys at the south gate the report that it was the british commodore and not their own general to whom louisbourg surrendered made a prodigious stir among the inhabitants of new england who had the touchiness common to small and ambitious peoples and as they had begun the enterprise and borne most of its burdens and dangers they thought themselves entitled to the chief credit of it pepperell was blamed as lukewarm for the honor of his country because he did not demand the keys and reject the capitulation if they were refused after all this ebullition it appeared that the keys were in his hands for when soon after the siege shirley came to louisbourg pepperell formally presented them to him in the presence of the soldiers warren no doubt thought that he had a right to precedence as being an officer of the king in regular standing while pepperell was but a civilian clothed with temporary rank by an appointment of a provincial governor warren was an impetuous sailor accustomed to command and pepperell was a merchant accustomed to manage and persuade the difference appears in their correspondence during the siege warren is sometimes brusque and almost peremptory pepperell is forbearing and considerate to the last degree he liked warren and to the last continued to praise him highly in letters to shirley and other provincial governors while warren on occasion of shirley's arrival at louisbourg made a speech highly complimentary to both the general and his soldiers the news that louisbourg was taken reached boston at one o'clock in the morning on the third of july by a vessel sent express a din of bells and cannon proclaimed it to the slumbering townsmen and before the sun rose the streets were filled with shouting crowds at night every window shone with lamps and the town was ablaze with fireworks and bonfires the next thursday was appointed day of general thanksgiving for a victory believed to be the direct work of providence new york and philadelphia also hailed the great news with illuminations ringing of bells and firing of cannon in england the tidings were received with astonishment and a joy that was dashed with reflections on the strength and mettle of colonists supposed already to aspire to independence pepperell was made a baronet and warren an admiral the merchant soldier was commissioned colonel in the british army a regiment was given him to be raised in america and maintained by the king while a similar recognition was granted to the lawyer shirley a question vital to massachusetts worried her in the midst of her triumph she had been bankrupt for many years and of the large volume of her outstanding obligations a part was not worth eight pence in the pound added to her load of debt she had spent 
183,649 pounds sterling on the Louisbourg expedition. That which Smollett calls the most important achievement of the war would never have taken place but for her, and old England, and not new, was to reap the profit. For Louisbourg, conquered by arms, was to be restored by diplomacy. If the money she had spent for the mother country were not repaid, her ruin was certain. William Bolin, English by birth and a son-in-law of Shirley, was sent out to urge the just claim of the province, and after long and vigorous solicitation he succeeded. The full amount in sterling value was paid to Massachusetts, and the expenditures of New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island were also reimbursed. The people of Boston saw twenty-seven of those long, unwieldy trucks which many elders of the place still remember as used in their youth, rumbling up King Street to the Treasury, loaded with two hundred and seventeen chests of Spanish dollars and a hundred barrels of copper coin. A pound sterling was worth eleven pounds of the old tenor currency of Massachusetts, and thirty shillings of the new tenor, those beneficent trucks carried enough to buy in at a single stroke nine-tenths of the old tenor notes of the province, nominally worth above two millions. A stringent tax laid on by the assembly paid the remaining tenth, and Massachusetts was restored to financial health. End of section 37. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah.